0: This is Mission.org.
1: This week in Marketing Trends, we've been talking about category creation. In the previous episode, we talked to Christopher Lockhead about how to define and design a category so that you can win. And in this episode, we're talking to Matt Trufiro, who has designed categories for numerous startups. Now, he has a... Maybe contrarian take on category creation, and you can hear his thoughts as Lauren and I sat down with him in studio, talked all things startup, category design, and how he's the first marketer in to do that work.
0: Marketing Trends is brought to you by Salesforce Pardot, B2B marketing automation on the world's number one CRM. Are you ready to take your B2B marketing to new heights? With Pardot, marketers can find and nurture leads, close more deals, and maximize ROI. Learn more by visiting pardot.com slash podcast or click on the link in our show notes.
1: Welcome to Marketing Trends. We have a special guest in studio, but I'm always joined by Lauren Vaccarello. How's it going, Lauren?
2: Uh, it's going amazing. How's it going, Ian?
1: Yeah, it's going uh, it's going pretty good. Matt, how are you? I'm doing terrific. How are you guys doing? It's a sunny day in Palo Alto, and we're happy to have you in studio to talk about all things marketing, as we tend to do. Wait,
2: this is a marketing podcast?
1: (laughs) For those that are uninspired. We have a lot to talk about. Uh, You've had a long career in both startup marketing and all different types of products and services. But let's first get into how did you get
3: into marketing in the first place? I'm a reluctant marketer and an unlikely marketer. I have zero professional training in marketing other than work experience. And I think, you
0: it's know- It's a when big was, caveat,
3: by the way. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. So don't trust anything I say. Don't actually take my advice. But I, when I was young, I thought I, I was gonna be a copywriter. And um, this was before the internet. That's how old I am. This before the internet was a thing. Computers were a thing. The Atari 400 and the TRS-80, but, but the internet wasn't a thing. Email wasn't really a thing, except on CompuServe. And I remember the 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 man with the Hathaway shirt and just being stunned by that print advertisement. And if you don't know what that is, uh, go and look it up. It's uh, amazing. I think Ogilvy created that. And I was impressed by the way that words can change and influence people. And I've built my career on that. In fact, I can think of two, two things that had very formative very formative moments in my, my career arc of being a marketer. So my stepfather used to subscribe to these business magazines. And one of them was an interview with the, the head of American Express's travel and related services. And back in those days, that was the card. And again, you two may be too young for this, but there was the American Express green card and there was Diners Club and there was Bank of America card, which became MasterCard. And they were all banal. They're all these generic things. And American Express came out with a gold card. And now, you know, they have gold and platinum and black and all these things, and they're very feature differentiated. If you're the platinum card, you get a free concierge and double the warranty and all this stuff. But back then, there was very little difference between the green card and the gold card. And it was one of the jokes because it was a status thing. You had to pull it out and, you know, you, you're, you want to take somebody out, a colleague out to dinner, you pull out the gold card, they were sort of impressed. It was like driving a, an expensive car. But so there's this joke, which is, well, what is the difference between the green card and the gold card? And people have laughed. There was no difference. So this interview with this, the head of uh, American Express travel related services, and they go through the whole interview and they're talking about the growth of the travel agency and banking cards and banking and all of this. And the last thing the interviewer says, I have to ask the question that everybody probably asks you, what is the difference between the green card and the gold card? And I just love what this guy said. He said, the difference between the green card and the gold card is the green card is green and the gold card is gold. And if you don't understand that, you don't understand marketing at American Express. And that, that, I've carried that with me. Like you literally can change the way that people understand their world and think about things with language. And it's been a, it's a very very powerful tool, and it helps with category creation, it helps with positioning, it helps with thought leadership, it helps with all those things. So,
1: well, no, nobody ever won the green medal, right? You only win the gold medal. Yeah. <laughs> um, and w- I didn't know that there was any other types of card other than the black card, because that's personally you know like what I use. Oh, but, absolutely. Uh, uh-huh. I always use so I have a Banana Republic card that's black, and I put my thumb over the Banana Republic card. <laughs> I'm like, let me just pay that with my black card. But it doesn't <laughs> weigh five pounds, right? That's the. I just put like three cards under it. It's like the two kids standing in a trench coat pretending to be an adult. Hello, fellow adults. <laughs> you know, like whatever. Exactly. It's an interesting insight and thought to say that you want to be a copywriter from a young age. You also had a background and you, you worked with Atari when you were younger as well.
3: Yeah. So, so I, I did do a stint where I tried to be a programmer and I was a game programmer and I was good at being a game programmer because nobody was good at being a game programmer. And I actually wrote a video game. It was never released. It was called Reptilian. A company called Synapse Software put it out, but I got into that whole world and I ended up writing about gaming and about gaming technologies. I became an editor of a tech magazine when I was like 18. And I was was at college. I was studying linguistics and philosophy and all these like liberal arts. And one of the the jobs that I had when I was working at the magazine, somebody from Atari called up and said, hey, do you have any of your writers that might be interested in writing documentation? I'm like, yes. right? (laughs) And they had no idea. I was this little pop off kid. And so I drove down to Sunnyvale, went to Atari's offices and they were surprised to see somebody so young so they lowballed me and I took it anyway. And I ended up writing the, uh, the owner's manual for the Atari, their, their ST line of computers, which was their next generation computers. And I wrote also their, they had a paint program like Mac paint that was Neochrome. And I wrote the doc for that. And I, my first work out of college was, uh, as was a technical writer and then writing a document, uh, building a technical, um, writing team and doing that. And I thought I might do that my whole career. I, you know, it's so funny. I mean, like we
1: you know, talking to someone who's a co-founder of a media company, but I think writing is the most important marketing skill. I think it's like first and foremost the most important.
2: Completely. And as you say, you you're a reluctant marketer, and you fell into marketing. Everything you're talking about, I'm like, but isn't that marketing?
3: Well, it, it is. But you know this, Lauren. It's like it's like there is there's the storytelling and the mm-hmm. positioning and the branding, and then there's demand gen. Yeah, and. Demand gen it benefits from good copy, but it's a totally different animal. It's a grind. It's a machine. It is a hamster wheel. Yeah. And it requires operational skills more than it requires creative skills.
2: And I think Demand gen definitely benefits from good copy and good creativity, but it's such, you articulated such a good and important difference that not a lot of people get is marketing isn't, all marketing isn't the same. And you have this brand storytelling side that is the creative, longer term, often perceived as more strategic. And then you have the daily execution grind of, of demand gen. And I have, for good or for bad, fallen into the demand gen grind most of my career. And I have always aspired to do what you do, which gets to be the longer term creative storytelling. How do you really become known and make a name for yourself as that and become the CMO that gets to thrive and survive as the... This is how I will build a category. This is how I will create a long-living brand.
3: The the interesting thing about so your old boss and mentor Bill McKittus. So so marketing went through a dark ages mm-hmm. with growth hacking and demand gen and you know data driven marketing. And all of this storytelling and brand, especially with startup technical engineering companies, was just seen as unimportant.
2: Was seen as arts and crafts. But yes. now it's having such an important resurgence of, no, no, you can have growth hacking. It's great. But if you don't have the why behind
3: That's it. That's right. That's right. That's right. That's right. So so Bill McIdis and I didn't actually hear this from him. And somebody told me that he'd, he calls cool. all of that well, other I'm, stuff. Can we get a... Who's Bill McAddis?
2: Oh, <laughs> oh I'm sorry. You- uh, so, Bill, hopefully, Bill, you're listening. Hi, Bill. Bill is SVP of digital at Salesforce, SVP at Fox Interactive, CMO of Zendesk, CMO of Slack, now runs consulting and does marketing consulting for some of the fastest growing brands and startups full stop.
3: And one of the nicest people in the industry. Oh, he's just delightful.
2: One of the most wonderful 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 humans and one of my top 3 favorite bosses and mentors of my entire career.
3: Yeah. Yeah. So so Bill Bill said there's short term lead gen and long term lead gen. Mm-hmm. And all the storytelling and brand building and all that it's long term lead gen. And he's absolutely right. That is a way to think about it if you come from this world of like, it's all about feeding the salespeople.
2: It is. It's the the short-term demand, gen is the how do I hit my number? How do I make sure I'm hitting my number today? I'm hitting my number today. I'm hitting my number today. And the brand and the storytelling is you worry about hitting your number today. I'm going to make sure there's still people to go after tomorrow. And I'm going to make sure the pie is bigger tomorrow.
3: Yeah.
1: Yeah. And, you know, when we were talking to Christopher Lockhead, which I don't know if that episode will have aired by the time this one is out, but... One of the things that he was talking about as a multi-time C- CMO, like you have been, Matt and Lauren, like you've been, is that a lot of the short-term stuff is becoming table stakes. Completely. And the longer-term stuff is actually what you know separates the wheat from the chaff, proverbially.
2: It is. And it's the... When I first got into marketing 15 years ago, it was the short-term digital and the tactics that suddenly became the differentiator because no one really knew how to do them. So if you understood tactics and mechanics, this is how a company would accelerate growth. But where we are today, that's it is pure table stakes. You can take a digital marketing class at university. You can take a growth hacking seminar. There's so many ways for people to learn how to do this. The ability to execute tactically is not a differentiator. Everyone needs to know how to do it. And it's the what's old is new and the Traditional marketing of brand and storytelling and appearing bigger than you are is now the skill set that so many newer marketers don't have, and you need strategic leaders to come in and help build and create that, and then to enable the people that are running demand gen every day with better content, better initiatives, better stories.
3: Yeah, and in some ways, it's a tragedy that all that kind of rolls up under this under a CMO, and mm-hmm. the CMO is expected to do all that stuff. I mean, I've actually gotten very clear in only the last few years of my career that, that look, there is a part of marketing where I think I'm in the top 1%. And then all this demand gen stuff and stuff, I can hire for that but I am not the person that you want to hire if that's where your head and your heart are. And I think it's long term in a larger company it's hard to be a CMO without having both those functions rolling up to you. but as a startup like a lot of times you don't need demand gen. A lot of times you're marketing. I mean, my my specialty is sort of being a 1st in marketer in a technology company. A lot of times they don't even have a product. They don't have a product to sell. They sort of yeah. don't have a selling motion. They don't have salespeople. They don't, you know, it's all strategic selling and messaging and, you know, being bigger than you are and being clear about who you are and what you are and what you're not and depositioning your competitors and positioning yourself. That's all that's what drives the business.
1: Yeah. I mean, let's get into that. I mean, w- sure. one of the marketing cutting edge products that number one people don't understand mm-hmm. and number two the people internally at the company don't understand how to position or can't clearly articulate that technology to outsiders like edge computing like some of these things uh, what's your thought process like what is your you know checklist or mental model or thing like matt's Matt's guide to marketing cutting edge yeah, I mean I
3: mean b- part of my superpower is just being willing to ask really dumb questions and sometimes it's because I just don't understand yeah like and and it's not just like what is this thing it's like Why should I care about it? Mm -hmm. Why should I care about what problems is solving and how do customers think about it? And that's the other thing. You have to talk to customers. I mean, customers are experts in their problems. They may not be experts in the product, right? They're experts in their problems. And your job is to convince the customer that you understand their problem. Like you don't get anywhere if they don't think you understand your problem. And then you have to convince them that you might have a solution to their problem. And then you have to demonstrate that you have a solution to the problem. And that's how you actually acquire a customer. And that's, I mean, that's a, in some ways, that's the way I think about the funnel. And a lot of that is language. A lot of that is positioning. A lot of that is, well, why would you do this when you can do that? And we're that, and they're this. And so so we talked about category creation and, uh, uh, you know, I, I tend to think that's kind of a marketing BS word. I think there's a lot of good techniques that go into that, but it's really just positioning. I mean, you go back to the original Al Ries and Jack Trout mm-hmm. book on positioning. What they talked about is to be a winning product, you have to hang your, you have to find a hook in the person's mind to hang your hat. And you can either identify a hook that doesn't have a hat on it yet, or you have to create a hook. To put the hat on Mm -hmm. and both of those require rhetorical technique and it has to be accurate and convincing i mean lauren i you know
1: i would i would position and say that you need to be experts at the person's symptoms Mm -hmm. right is like the person is just the customer is coming to you and saying i have knee pain they right. don't know why they that's have right. knee pain. Yeah. That's right, and and they don't know like how to fix that knee pain. But they're just saying like, if you're just saying ice and Advil, that's probably not enough.
2: It is, and there's if someone has knee pain, there's a hundred ways to to solve that problem. There's ice and Advil. There's different shoes. There's well, instead of walking, should you be sitting down? There's a hundred ways to think about something. And I Matt, one of the points that you made so well is your role is to go in and talk to customers. It's not to try to sell a cu- the customer, this is a specific product, but what is the hair on fire problem that the customer has? Yeah. How do my knee like- hurts. My knee hurts. And I just
3: want the pain to go away. Yep. And you need to convince me that, that, that little pill that you have is the best way to make my knee pain go away. But don't talk about the pill, talk about the knee pain.
2: Exactly. And it is the thing that I think gets forgotten so, so often is it is not about why your product is the greatest thing in the world. And this is why this pill matters. It's The person doesn't care why the pill matters the person cares that their knee hurts and i want this to be solved and how do we talk about their problem what they're trying to do versus us But
1: orin i have features you these all these features that are so these are bullet points and (laughs) let
2: me walk you through why the coating on this pill is the best coating in the world (laughs) and by the way did you know it's vegan and keto friendly too you're like nope don't care my knee just hurts
1: so You've talked about in the past this idea of like thought leadership as part of this positioning. How do you use thought leadership as something that, you know, we've established words matter. Words matter a lot when they're coming from your leadership team. You know, someone like, you know, Lauren has worked with CEOs and uh, as you have as well that have potentially millions of followers, that people that hang on their every word, you know, this, as we continue going forward, this is going to be a bigger and bigger thing. CEOs that are, have become these kind of like, you know, proverbial rock stars. Now everyone uses that word, but it's true. I mean, it really is true. Definitely in their space. How do you view that coming from a company versus coming from the leadership versus coming from the subject matter experts? Like how do you view thought leadership as part of that marketing of
3: cutting edge products? Okay. So you bundled about 30 questions into that one question. I always Um, do. Yeah. So don't confuse the leadership of the company with thought leadership. They can go together, but they don't necessarily have to go together because a company can have thought leadership that's sort of anonymous. It's not Mm -hmm. related to an individual. If you have a charismatic CEO uh, or founder, which oftentimes you do in a startup, and they are a subject matter expert, and you can help them hone their perspective, again, in a way that customers understand or that people you need to influence, understand press, analysts, and so on, and that it is a highly differentiated messaging, meaning it has this fresh feeling to it. It's either a really unique, powerful perspective, or it's controversial or contrarian, and it's articulated convincingly, and it's articulated over and over again. That can create a a leadership spot. So when I think about thought leadership, so I think, yes, as a as a company that's trying to be bigger, you know, punch above its weight, which a lot of startups mm-hmm. need to do, you're competing against everybody else, like in edge computing. I mean, you know, we've got Schneider Electric and Dell and HP and all these other companies that want to talk about edge computing. So how do I take this little company where I'm literally the only full-time marketing person? We're 25 people in the company. I have a PR team, a part-time writer, and me. How do we make ourselves bigger? Well, we have to have a point of view that is different from everybody else's out there and that actually it is dangerous for them to disagree with. So a really clear example that's, I think, more in, in people's experience is, so Salesforce did this brilliantly with cloud. Okay, so I remember 13 years yep. ago, no software, cloud, mm-hmm. very controversial, and Mark did that on purpose. But as the competitors realized how, how, how that had such great legs, they... You know, Oracle's a great example, right? The nemesis of uh, they started saying, "Well, we've got you know, we we have cloud products too, you know, hybrid cloud." And so Salesforce did this brilliant positioning exercise around cloud. So they they first said, "Look, hybrid cloud is like artificial grass; it's mm-hmm. not real. You don't want artificial grass. You want real grass. You don't That's want great. hybrid cloud. You want real cloud." And then they said, "Look, the way you tell if something's the real cloud is it has five things." And I might not be able to remember them all, but you don't have to buy any hardware. Mm-hmm upgrades are automatic. You don't buy a license for the software. You pay for it by the month or by the year. It's a subscription and it has an app store. Now, those are five arbitrary elements and they all support Salesforce's positioning. But because they're kind of irrefutable too, right? Like how can you disagree that a cloud doesn't? I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a very painful argument for Oracle to say, well, no, no, you don't need an app store to be part of the cloud. And like it just clobbered everybody. Mm-hmm. Like, nobody could disagree with that point of view. It was absolutely brilliant.
2: And I think such good points on that is, as the company and as the marketer, you get to define what that is. Salesforce wasn't coming in and saying, based on previously established information, this is how I'm going to fight in your game. It is, no, no, I'm going to reestablish the rules. And by the way, I've reestablished the rules in the game, and this is what we believe to be true, and this is our point of view. And it's so weird that we perfectly support Every single thing that we say is necessary, and they made sure that the things that they said, like having an app store, well, guess what? No one else has that, and we've decided that in this category, this is required. That's right. That's right. And no one else can fight on yeah. our territory, uh, fight on our turf. And yeah. as a, a startup is building out their marketing strategy it's really important for them to realize you don't have to play in someone else's rules you can define the rules and by the way your rules oddly enough only support your position perfectly and start to tick away at what's wrong with the competition
1: well it's you know to to use the knee pain analogy it's like you know four of those things are like Oh man, that solves my knee pain. And then the final one is like, and I'm gonna give you a lollipop on the way out, right? Is like, oh, also you get this like access to this app store, which is like that was not something that anyone knew they needed, nor and it was you know cutting edge at the time.
2: And, and you don't know you need it, but once you have it, it is something that you can't you can't live without. Yeah. And it's the and I love your your take on this. Uh, it's the what was it the if I asked my customers what they wanted, they would have said a faster horse. Yeah, yeah. And it's the, if I asked my customers what they wanted, here's the things they would have said, but based on what they're trying to solve and me thinking long-term and me thinking bigger, this is actually a different solve. And how do you think of sort of that analogy and things in that regards when you're, say, building out the edge product and building out uh, some of the marketing you've done?
3: So make sure I understand the question, so you're saying how, how do you... How, how do you how
2: anticipate do you... unknown needs of the customers yes,
3: yes okay so well that's a great question okay so I'm, go- I'm gonna tell it through another story so there is this this myth in Silicon Valley that the iPhone Steve Jobs came up with the iPhone he had a vision and a dream and it was the iPhone and uh, and I've heard many startup entrepreneurs argue with me like I, I customers don't know what they want I'm not gonna ask my customers because yeah they're gonna tell me to build a faster horse like Steve Jobs didn't ask customers. He, you know, They created the iPhone. It was brilliant. Like, that's not true at all. Yeah, no <laughs> kidding. So sure, a lot of it came from creative inspiration. But Apple rigorously tested. I mean, they would create 10 pixel-perfect alternatives to some functionality of the iPhone. Like I remember reading about the page flipping. So why does it feel like when you slide, you remember when the iPhone first came out, now it's commonplace. it, It felt like you were flipping a page. That's because they tested 10 pixel perfect versions in front of hundreds of customers till they got that mechanics exactly right. And so it, it, you certainly have to have the inspiration, you have to be able to form these creative hypotheses, but you have to test them. Mm-hmm. And you know, sometimes testing is expensive, like getting a bunch of people to evaluate a product in a statistically significant fashion, but messaging can be tested too. And sometimes it can be tested with a small group of people. Like if you get in a room where you've got the 15 people that need to, like, like if they were to tell their 15 best friends about this new thing, and if you can plant an idea in their head that again, it's a hat that hangs on a hook where they instantly understand it, has this sort of self-evidence, obviousness to it, but also this freshness, and they can repeat it back to you. Like you're done. Like I, I'll give you a really a really clear example from my history. So I was thinking when we were preparing for the interview, I was thinking, you know, people call me sort of this category expert because I've sort of done it, even though I say that I don't know how to do it. But um, one of my early startups in, in the mid-90s was a an interactive television company. And we had a very contrarian view to interactive television. Back then, the big companies like Microsoft and stuff were trying to build fully interactive set-top boxes with like Windows C and all this stuff like we have today. But back then, like the the economics of that just wouldn't work. Like they measured the cost of a set-top box in fractions of a penny. And also they're, they're, the cable plant couldn't handle digital services. Like it just wasn't, they didn't have TCPIP running over the networks and all that. So we had this technology that would insert into the closed captioning of a broadcast signal and add interactivity to the TV signal. And we were playing in this space where there was a lot of talk about by big companies about how interactive television could change. I mean, Time Warner was doing that big trial in Orlando and they had, you know, these SGI $3,000 boxes in the table and all of this. So how are we gonna get our little message out there and be differentiated? I was working with a, with a filmmaker, a gentleman by the name of David Hoffman. He's an absolute genius at messaging. He just, one day he said, why don't we call it enhanced broadcasting? I'm like, okay, that has all the, the characteristics. Like you hear it, you kind of understand what mm-hmm. it means. It sort of feels like it's a word that should have been there. It's a phrase that should have been there, but it doesn't exist yet. So I have an opportunity to own it. So we went out and tested it. We said, this is enhanced broadcasting. And if reporters start writing about it, and competitors start positioning against it, and friends start repeating it, you know you've, you've got something. Mm. And so that very simple phrase, that language of saying we're enhanced broadcasting and they're not, was huge for the business. It, it eliminated 90% of the confusion that we had with customers.
1: I would say... It, that sounds like category creation, right? Sure does. So, so, yeah. and what, and your response to that was like that is positioning, right? Sure. And so, whatever you, whatever the listener thinks of this in their mind of like whatever this thing is, is building the messaging that you will
3: fight and win, right, on your terms. That's yes, that's a great way of putting it. It's it's where's your defensible space? Where are what are you? And this is a good heuristic. What are you the best and only at? Because if you can say, look. If, if you're looking to do something else, we not may not be the best and only, but if you're looking to do this, and again, it's got to have a big enough TAM, big enough addressable market, and it's got to be important enough. It has to be a problem the customer's trying to solve. But if it has those things and you're the best and the only, you're invincible. I mean, it's very hard to take on somebody who is focused on a niche, understands what the niche is, understand how it's fixing a customer problem, and then has the language to lock everybody else out.
2: I, I, I completely agree with you. And it is the... How do you fight on your terms versus on somebody else's? Yes.
3: That's right. That's right. And if you're out there defining the game, it's very hard for anybody else to to compete against you.
2: And one thing that you you said that reminded me a little bit is as you're you're saying enhanced broadcasting. Right. It's the it makes me think a lot about the power of language. And if you figure out what is the right language, what's the language that resonates with people, how is this going to stick and how is this going to kind of change the game? I have a my quick aside: Have you th- a movie recently came out called Vice?
3: I, I don't know. About um, it,
2: no. So Christian Bale is in it. He plays Dick Cheney. It is basically about Dick Cheney. I have a man crush uh, on
3: Christian Bale. Christian
2: Bale is incredible in this movie. So I went and see this movie recently, and it's highly recommended. Interesting film, but one of the things it talks about, and it was. Um, how during George W. Bush's administration, what they what Dick Cheney and his team was doing with a marketing and PR firm around getting focus groups, testing language, testing messaging. And one of the objectives that they had was how do they repeal the estate tax? And they get people in a room and said, you know, there's let's say 15 people in a room who's opposed to an estate tax. And this is a tax that basically saves money for the wealthiest people. One person out of 15 says, you know, I oppose the estate tax. And they said, what if we call it a death tax? Right. How many people are opposed to a death tax? Every single person is opposed to a death tax. You have Whoopi Goldberg on The View saying, a death tax? What are they going to do? They want to tax me when I die. And then all of a sudden, the change of that language completely changes perception. And you're able to get policy changed and the entire court of public opinion changed. And if you watch that movie, there's really interesting things to pick up from a marketing perspective since I look at everything as a marketer. But I think that makes so much sense in what we do on software side and what you did on enhanced broadcasting of how do you make that intentional language and probably like Apple, how do you test it? How do you understand impact? so that this is actually causing the the net result you want.
1: Well, that's like everybody dies, right? But not everybody has an estate. Yep. You're like, right. you know, like every well, it's like yeah. it's like the it's like the use of, you know, like husband or wife or spouse or partner, like all of those are very intentional terms in their own way. But mm-hmm. not everyone has all of those different things. Like all of all of those words super matter and when you're talking specifically to early adopters, they have things and they will do things and they will purchase things that are different than the rest of everybody else. And when you're talking to those people, you have to have extremely precise language because they're presumably pushing the envelope in some way. So you don't want to sound boring or mundane or whatever it is. I mean, when you're pushing new things into those early adopters, like what are those kind of words, like
3: what are those kind of things? So I think it's a, it's a, so that's actually a great question because in some ways that's an easier problem to solve because you've got a vacuum Mm -hmm. and you have to recognize that, that humans crave having a name to stand in for a very complex concept, partly because it's a cheat. If you name something, you think you understand it, edge computing, right? Like, well, there's 20 definitions of it, but everybody says it as if they had, they understood it. So if you can introduce a phrase that solves for that craving that people are trying to get around, and I'll give you an example. So I'm an advisor for a company, Buoyant, and Buoyant makes a highly technical product that is designed to help microservices communicate with each other. And so what do you call this thing? Like, like it doesn't have a name. It's like this thing we used at Twitter and it's got a bad open source name called Linkerd that nobody knows whether they should play it Linkerd or Linkerd and all that. And so they went to it. And I said, why don't we just call it a service mesh and let's test it. And the thing that was cool is we presented that term into the ecosystem of basically the Kubernetes ecosystem and immediately everybody adopted it. I
2: love Kubernetes.
3: Yes. Everybody adopted that term. Like it just became, and in fact, it almost became too successful Mm. because other larger companies adopted it and Outran buoyant in some in some ways, so it was almost too too good. It was too easy for your competitors to use. But I think the the key there is that a lot of times there's an opportunity because your audience, the people in this ecosystem, are craving these terms that have crisp definitions that they feel like they can use over and over again as as crutches to mm-hmm. tell a more complicated story.
1: I, I want to pop back into thought leadership for a second with the lens of just specifically B two B because I think that there's so many. B2B companies where your executive team or your blog or however it is that you're promoting thought leadership. And actually we can just dive fully into everything you learned about PR because that, that kind of is all part of this, this world. Figure I'll ask you 15 questions in one again. But the idea that for B2B companies, that might be a lot more necessary. Whereas, you know, if you're selling Downey or whatever, so, you know, whether it's the you know Procter and Gamble or Johnson Johnson or CPG products in general. Thought leadership for you know what you wipe up your countertops with. Nobody needs to know the CEO of that product, but for B two B, like it is important. Like th- whether it's your company as like you know a whole, or whether it's someone on the leadership team or whatever it is, it's been something that is hugely prevalent and growing in importance. Just talk about like. With those kind of B two B strategies, and then kind of weave
3: in your thoughts about PR. Well, so you said downing and I'm sorry, my brain went off on downing because I actually think that's a perfect example of, of category creation, like fabric softener. Like, why do we need fabric softener? The fact that they've convinced us that we have to buy this extra stuff, or hair conditioner, or all these things that we do. That I mean, they have dubious level. I mean, I've
2: so, I've, so hair conditioner is not required. What if I don't you
3: have a two so? in one? Because well, we'll see, my, right? He, exactly. My hair is luxurious. I, and, yeah, exactly, <laughs> yeah, I like, exactly. I can, mean, it, I don't, I don't. I mean, does it really? No, I don't actually think it makes a difference. See, well,
2: For my life, hair conditioner is required.
3: There's a, a quick <laughs> aside. They've convinced there, you of that. Yes. One of my <laughs> least favorite
1: articles that I've ragged on in the past was like the all the things that millennials are killing. I, I've I've said this like five times recently on on different podcasts. Like, I hate the term. Like I hate all generational terms as they're used to like describe behaviors of people, but like millennials or baby boomers or any of these things are they're absolutely idiotic. Young people do what young people do, and middle aged people do what middle aged. It, there's and it's like forever, right? Right. <laughs> and like the fact that like a, a generation of people kill products is like no, the companies that own those products kill their products by like they're not evolving. Yeah. So one of the ones was that millennials are killing napkins. It's a hilarious thing to think about. Of like, you know, my parents use napkins. What's every- the alternative? Paper towels. It's just what is the job that you need done? There's well, a spill. I have an eight-year-old, eleven-year-old. It's it's pants. Oh yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah, but but so it's cancer-killing another... napkins. But for all those products, that is like marketing and positioning and all of that sort of stuff. And I think for B two B, you're looking at something totally different, something defensible that you can't kill, right? Like that's the whole point, right? You want to have a lasting business that is not going to get disrupted by, you know, your pants or Amazon Basics or, uh, you know, Walmart Essentials or whatever their, their brand is. But with B2B products, and, and it doesn't have to be software, but it's a much different thing as you're looking at that thought leadership because of you're trying to predict a future in which your company matters, a future in which like, you know, napkins matter is, is not as a complex
3: of a sale. I guess I don't really disagree agree with that. I mean, I think that it's a, you're right. It's whether you get it right or not has different consequences. But if my business is selling napkins, I have a stake in whether millennials use paper towels or napkins. And I can, oh, for sure. And I can imagine a, a marketing campaign that convinces people that napkins are better than paper towels. So I was talking about my arc of, of becoming a marketer. There was the American express story, but the other story that just completely changed my whole perception of the world. And I actually don't know if this is a true story. I read it in a book and it, but it might be apocryphal, but it's still a great story. So the way the story's is told is back in probably the 50s, you tuna at a sushi restaurant, what color is it? Pink. When you buy it in a can, what color is it? White. Yeah, But there's also pink albacore, but it's, it's like kind of considered crap. The story, the way the story is told is most tuna is pink. And so when they first started canning tuna, the high quality product was the pink tuna. And there was a company that had a bunch of white albacore and they didn't know how to get rid of it. So they ran a bunch of TV commercials. And the TV commercial was, our tuna is such high quality, we guarantee it won't turn pink. (laughs) And according to the story, that's why we're all eating white tuna. There's a true story that I know is absolutely true that's related to fish, um, but it has to do with salmon. So salmon is not a traditional sushi fish. In fact, the diehards in Japan think salmon is... Like it doesn't belong in sushi anywhere. It's weird texture, it's weird flavor, all of it. And yet in America, it's the most popular thing. And it's still, po- it's popular in Japan, but not always. And, and this is probably from the eighties, I think. There was a Norwegian fish company that had just an unbelievable amount of extra salmon that they couldn't get rid of. And there was one guy who was, his job was to try to break into the Japanese market. He tried everything. He mm-hmm. tried partnering with sushi chefs who had want, nothing to do with this, didn't want to choose their customers and all this. And finally, he, level of desperation, he called up the largest f- frozen food company in Japan and said, I'll basically give this to you, but you've got to market it as frozen sushi. And so it started as this kind of frozen, inexpensive version of sushi, and then it started showing up on the in the cheaper sushi restaurants, on the sushi boats, mm-hmm. and then it became just a staple of sushi. And th- there isn't so much a language thing there, but it has that same, you know, repositioning a product and using marketing to change the way people perceive it and how important they they think of it as their life. And that's, I mean, it's that's what marketing does. That's a lot of what marketing does. Now you can't replace. A bad product with good marketing. So, salmon sushi worked because once you get over the bias, it actually tastes pretty good, just as Chilean sea bass does, which prior to getting marketing was called uh, Patagonia toothfish. Yep. Oh. So, it sold that. horribly until someone renamed it Chilean sea bass.
2: And I think there's actually so much we can learn even from the, the general food industry if you start to think about. What are the sort of common foods that are being eaten now that weren't five years ago or ten years ago and the bay area's obsession with kale and brussels sprouts just didn't used to exist and you know that sitting there somewhere there is this guy or lady going all right i'm now working for the brussels sprout farmers of america everyone hates brussels sprouts it's the thing that gets made fun of everywhere is what kids don't want to eat how do we change perception on this, right. and what are we going to do? And to a point now that I don't know if this is common for everyone else, Brussels sprout chips are on every single menu and are the first thing people order. But if you think back five years ago, it is the vegetable everybody hates. Well, it's
1: yeah. like how do we make people feel like superhumans? Right. Oh, well, give them superfoods. Yes. Oh, yeah. Exactly. Five superfoods you need to be eating right now. Right. Like, you know all Wait, that. But
2: w- who wouldn't want to eat superfoods? Right? Yeah.
1: But so I so. To your point, though, I I agree with all the stuff that you're saying that you can reposition that and there's takeaway for B2B marketers, but there's never going to be a user conference for napkins. That's where you kind of get into some of the B2B strategies where you're looking at there has to be something beyond the TV ad or beyond the campaign that, or maybe there doesn't, but with some of the, you know, consumer products and things like that, you have to think creatively about how do you position, how do you do all that with certain B2B products and things like that. Like, again, there you have to think in different terms as well. How does, and, and maybe that's how we can get into some of the PR conversation, because I think PR is like one of the most hot button issues. And I and I think that there's a million ways to do it. And then there's kind of Matt's ways to do it, which I'm curious to hear about. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think that like, it's, it's a problem
3: set that you really have to, Figure out right, yeah. So, you know, Ian, I have never really thought about it that way, but as I think about it, I'm I think a lot of the patterns are the same, but you're right, the techniques and the distribution channels are different. And I think also in B2B, because you have a higher ticket value per purchase, typically, yeah, you can spend more on fewer people and there's typically fewer buyers, whereas you know, mass marketing is one company hundreds of millions of people whereas B2B is one company and you know orders of magnitude fewer people so yes you can invest more they coalesce more their their the, the 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 problem set is more complicated and deeper and their problems are more complicated and deeper so they're willing to invest more time in it they're willing to go to a conference they're willing to hear your talk so you you're right you do need to treat it differently than a, than a consumer play but the the core f- Framing and positioning and depositioning and creating the language—that's all the same. Yeah, you just go into more depth, and you have the latitude to go into more depth because you can afford the budget. Uh, did that answer your question? No, that's great. Yeah, yeah.
2: And I definitely want to dig in on the PR side a bit. I think a lot about some of the CEOs I've worked with over time, and some buy into PR, some don't, and some just fundamentally don't understand why this matters. Why do you, why you care about it? And Matt, I know this is something you excel at, but if I'm a new marketing leader, if I'm a CEO, why should I why should I give a
3: Well, so yeah, that's actually I never get asked that question because usually the people that approach me are like, I want you to do the thing you did already at this company and that company and that company. <laughs> and PR has become one of the most important parts of my my tool chest. And I'll be honest, I I did PR poorly many times in my career because I thought I wanna get press, I hire an agency. And that isn't the way to do it. I mean, yes, you need the right agency, but you need to work with the agency in a very different way. So part of it is you have to invest a ton of your own time or your department's time into doing great PR and partnering with your PR agency. And you have to get your company's leadership. So prior to joining my current job, I sat down with the CEO and I said, look, PR is a big part of my playbook. I'm going to need budget for PR. And I'm going to probably spend 50 to 60% of my time. And I'm going to expect you to spend 20 to 25% of your time on PR. Because if we don't do that, it's not going to work. But if we do do it and we start investing, it's going to pay dividends forever. And B2B marketing, buyers and influencers in that space read the specialty publications. They do. And if you are in every story in the topic that people are searching for, they have to pay attention to you. And the only way you make that happen is you have to have you have to have all the right ingredients. You have to have a real product and a real point of view, and it has to be visionary, and it has to check all the boxes and it has to be different than your competitors. So you don't sound like everybody else. But assuming you have all of that, you have to do the hard work. So you don't issue a press release. Press releases are worthless. The only thing a press release does is Gives you a little bit of SEO juice, but not enough to justify the five to fifteen hundred dollars you spend on issuing the press release. It gives us the perimeter of an official announcement, but that's all it does. All the work into getting press happens before the announcement even comes out. It happens, you know, four weeks before, six weeks before, where you've got a draft of the press release and a draft of, of the blog post, and you have a great PR agency that has relationships with reporters in your space, and they pitch the story. And the three days before the announcements, you are in back-to-back briefings. You are doing a grind where you're doing 30 and 60-minute briefings with every reporter and every analyst, and they've seen a draft of the press release, they've seen the blog post, they've been able to make the assessment of whether their readership is going to care about it, because you're giving them advance and you're telling them there, there's an embargo date. They ha- there's a sense of I don't want to miss out on this, and you use all that to create momentum around. And then the press release is the thing. I mean nothing actually happens on the day that you release it. I mean maybe you'll get some reporter that wasn't on your list coming over the transom saying I'd like to talk to your CEO, but all the discussion happens in advance and it is a lot of work. It's a lot of work to do right.
1: I will say that some of the worst meetings of my entire life have been talking to reporters about, well what's the story here? And I'm like the story is that I don't want to do this anymore because this is horrible. But like no, it that's That's you're exactly right. Like it's so much prep work for launch. That is a tree falls in the forest. That doesn't mean it's not worthless or that doesn't mean it's worthless or it's not of value, but you need to tie that to what goals you're trying to achieve. What I've seen so many times is people just do press because they think they need to do press. I mean, like it's like, what do I got to do for press? That's literally like the end goal because there's not a marketer standing there with like, hey, this is what the strategy. Yeah. Is. I mean, as a
3: startup company, you want to do press for two reasons. One, if you have a, concentrated, a concentration of great press while you're raising a round, mm-hmm. you're going to close that round faster. It is, I've seen it happen dozens of times. It's just a better, because they, they, they do Google searches and they're like, my God, you guys are everywhere. I can't miss out on this. And then the second reason is to basically be bigger than you are. It's how do you, because the, the reporters become the imprimatur of what is real and substantial. And if you are mentioned in every story on your category, because you've done the hard work of creating a really unique message that, that the audience cares about, yeah. because, because you've thought about it, like, what is, this, what is the press going to care about, right? And the press, I mean, the press loves controversy. They love funding. They love product releases. They don't care about a partnership. They don't care about a customer adopting your product. They don't. So there is one, there is one dirty trick here that I'm going to reveal to the audience. And I learned this at Salesforce. So because the press likes product announcements, you can create what Salesforce calls, I'm probably going to get a nasty call from Mark, a launch product. And that is a product that you actually have no intention to ship by itself. Okay. But you want to be able to tell the press, this is a thing. It's a noun, you can put your words on it. So uh, Salesforce's Einstein is the most recent example. This was like three years ago, right? So they announced Einstein at Dreamforce, which was Salesforce's AI product. Well, there's no Einstein skew that you can buy from Salesforce. Einstein is like the AI in all of their products, right? But when they launched it, it was that which looked like a product. And Salesforce is perfectly comfortable, and I'm perfectly comfortable, packaging things like their products so that they're more easily consumable by the press and their audience.
2: And I think this goes back to what you were talking about earlier around messaging uh, around messaging positioning and how you can use language to simplify. Yes. And how do you make it make it, it
3: consumable and a package and it has a word and yes, that's that's exactly right. That is part of the technique.
2: And something that I want to make sure we really capture for all the listeners is all of that prep work that's happening before before the launch, before the announcement, before the press release, marketing and the PR team and the marketing leader needs to come up with, what is the what is the core story we're trying to get across? What's the most important message? How do you see the spokesperson training? How do you see the messaging training that's going to happen? Are you very prescriptive about it with the executives and the spokespeople? Are you... Do you let people kind A- of evolve? A- naturally? Everyone's
3: different. Everyone's different. If so, I've been very fortunate that I've mostly worked with really articulate CEOs, <laughs> Alex Bard or Cole Crawford, my current CEO, really articulate. And so I'm mostly coaching and guiding. You know don't talk so fast, don't use so many acronyms, you reinforce this phrase, but it's it's more of a fine tuning. So what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to take the best of their qualities and enthusiasm and their charisma and just simplify it and package it in a way that it's more easily consumable. And that's, uh, so I require that relationship with usually one of the founders. Like they they have to be able to talk to the press because the press wants, doesn't want to hear from the marketing person. So I can create the words and I can shape them they want and I can coach the, the the CEO, but they want to talk to the CEO. Yep. So that's why I have a requirement that yes, you're going to spend 20 to 25% spend a day a week doing PR with me. So one of the things that I thought was super interesting
1: when you were kind of like detailing that was you talked about what the press is looking for. And I think what's interesting is that what a reporter is looking for and what the actual, like what your customers are looking for are sometimes, sometimes sometimes really, really different. Because as we kind of talked about before, like a new product launch or whatever, it's like, hey, this is something we can throw in and like, you know, we're a media company, so their business models are like page views because that's how they get paid, right? So follow the business model there. Things that are sexy headlines, you know, keyword stuffing and all that, all that fun stuff, but back to the customer point is like they're still worried about their knee pain getting your you know 10 to 13 impressions which is what we're talking about is like hey i always see this person in the news this company in the news super valuable what is it? what's the there's a statistic it's like if you've read something 18 times like you just believe it to be true or something like that
3: there's there's something like that um, well there's a corollary too as a marketer like just when you're getting tired of your message, your customer's finally hearing it for the yes, first time. Yes, that's great. Yes. Like stop changing. Like you have to think is just keep, keep at it. Yes. Consistency is a secret to marketing. Yes,
1: that's great. And so you get to all of that piece, which is kind of essentially the brand awareness piece of like getting people familiar over and over and over again. And then the positioning around the actual like thing that you're solving for. Like most, I mean, some people are out there searching for it but some people are not, once they get that out, that cold email from your sales team, once they get that, you know, invitation to a webinar, once they get that, whatever that, you know, or download the PDF or go to the- the State piece, of the Edge report. State yeah. of the Edge report, yeah. right? They've been primed for this for so long through yes. these other activities yes. that they're like, oh, I'm really interested in yes. seeing the State of the Edge report. Yes.
3: Yeah, so part of it is, it's all about building momentum. Right? So it's not just about doing one launch, it's about doing one a quarter. And in fact, the way I think about it as a small team, I wanna do one big announcement a quarter, one small announcement every month and one tiny blip thing, like with one reporter, one story every week. Like that's, that's my goal. That's the kind of cadence and that's about what the press can absorb. Like they can't take a big announcement every two weeks. It just it overwhelms them.
1: Well, and and the, and the people, this is like, I, I always like to think of it as like one budget cycle. You need to be positioning, like you're selling for next year, right? So you need to be yeah. positioning yourself and building momentum is like, yeah, I didn't buy that product in, you know, February, but come next budget cycle. I've been, all I do is hear about this company. Yeah. And it's like, they've added three products or two SKUs or two features or whatever it is. And like, now I'm at the time where I'm trying to make a decision in December about whether or not I should spend the money. And it's like, I keep hearing these people. Then it's like, I'm going to fill out the lead form.
3: Yeah, so there's two things I want to I address in, in what you just said. So one of the things is, what is the the needs of the of the journalist are different than the needs of the customer, and I think that doesn't have to feel so much in conflict because a lot of times it isn't the messaging that's. I mean, yes, the the reporter wants to write about something that a lot of their readers want to write about, but if you've focused on the readers and the readers of the customer, and for B two B this is different. B two C like it's it's clickbaity, but B two B it's not so much clickbaity. But what you need to understand is that the, the reporter they have to file five to ten stories a day. And so if you can make their job easy mm-hmm. and that's why you send them the blog post and that's why you send them the slide deck and that's why you send them. I mean, if you supply a reporter with a beautiful image, they will put it in their story because they need something and it saves them the 10 minutes of going on some stock photo site to find some you know dumb thing to represent edge computing or the cloud. They'll use your image, and so packaging all that up and really doing the work ahead of time to make it easy for the reporter to write the story, is a huge part of, of getting that done.
1: Also, writing the story, like structuring it, how journalists write stories. Do you like? Do you have a tool or something that you've used, or like an article of like how journalists write stories? Bottom line up front, like each
3: you know line being less important. No, but than I previous, naturally so. do that. From I well, know you do, but I, I'm I, saying for I our don't listeners. carry the lead. And, well, yeah. So the, it's the inverse funnel. So the assumption, like with a newspaper article, is that 90% of people are gonna read the first paragraph, 80% of read the second paragraph, and like once you've gone to a jump, you're gonna you're gonna be down to your 20%. So your temptation often is, especially if you come out of like academic writing, is to, is to lay out all of the convincing stuff and then put the conclusion at the end, right? Well, you may do that, but then edit it and take the conclusion and put it like if you don't tell me the conclusion in the first paragraph, you've lost me. And I think that's important for any kind of, especially in today's world, when we're multitasking and ADD and looking at our phone. Yeah. Can I add a corollary to this? Yeah, yeah
1: please. So we um, we did a bunch of testing with length of articles, because mm-hmm. you can test that, how much time people spend in. So we wrote a 63-minute article. It was super, super complex topic, really long form. And it was like 19 people read this. You're like those 19 people are either super bored or really interested in what we're talking about. Right. And it's like if you have a like a super niche product where it's like, hey, I'm trying to sell to the CDO or something, something like that, where it's like, if you do the whole thing, the people who get through that are like the most. And you can use marketing automation, shout out to Pardot. You can use things to be able to retarget those people and all sorts of crazy stuff. And it's like, man, that's a highly targeted group of people that, you know, again, this is why this stuff is so fun. It's like two articles written on a blog post or whatever it is on a website, it's words on a page, completely different use case, results, purpose, but like to the untrained eye, it's just like it's words on a page. And a lot of times the untrained eye is your CEO who's been coding for the last 15 years of their life. Who's like, why does any, it's just words, right? Yeah.
3: Yeah. Well, it's interesting the um the the length question. So so I I do think about that a lot. And look, if you if you don't have time to write a 900 word article, a 500 word article is fine. But the other thing to realize, especially if you if you write the article in the inverse funnel, you can make it as long as you want. Yeah. Because people read to their level of interest. And
2: you still got the main point across yeah. up front. It's the pulp fiction. Tell me the end first. Yeah. Then tell me the beginning, and then go through the details yeah. and then tell me the and end. And make again. it
3: easy, and yeah. and don't make me feel guilty for skipping or abandoning. That's not a big deal. Like if you read the first three paragraphs, you should get all the important stuff. And then if you want backup and background and justification and argumentation, that's you that'll can come go for later.
2: It. The so I've got. I think you you've touched upon this really well, but it's the thinking about brand building and how you build a brand. How do you see PR? In the role of building a brand and how do you use PR to really build it?
3: I don't actually think about it that way. So it's very hard to get consumed by the brand, right? And I think what's more important is that you pick an identification for your company, you know, your logo, your, your brand identification, the name of your company and the logo. And then that you tie all the important stories that you want to own back to that word Mm -hmm. and phrase and logo and that you do it consistently and you do it a lot because all of that, it it accretes value to to the thing. So the brand is the sum total of what everybody has read or thinks about you. I mean, that's all it is. And yes, it creates equity because it is the sum total of all those things. But I don't, so I do it very bottoms up. I don't really do it top down. Like what do we want our brand to be? Because if if any of you have actually tried to, Get a bunch of executives to write a mission statement or do a culture deck. It's it's like pulling teeth,
2: and no one's no one is ever happy with it. You end and up. No one's picking,
3: ever time. But when never the done. brand becomes the thing that's the representation of all of these bottoms up things, it's, like, it's just natural.
2: I think that's such a more authentic way to do it too, because it's not these six executives in a room that we wouldn't let out of the room or give them food until they made a decision. Came up with this is who the brand is. Well, and they argue about
3: what the name of the company should be. I mean, come on, Coca Cola is a horrible name for a company. (laughs) It's horrible. CNN, cable news network, it's horrible. And yet, you know, two of the top brands in the world.
2: And it becomes the this is what the world thinks we are. This is what our employees perceive us to be. This is what our customers perceive us to be. Here's all of the bits and pieces. This is what the press talks about us. That all eventually created who the brand is. Yes,
3: an important thing, especially with a startup company. A large company that has a lot of money can push the brand down, mm-hmm. but a small company can't. Like a small company, the only way the brand's going to be authentic is actually is a representation of all this bottoms-up stuff, and so you actually you have to do it that way. It's the only way to cost-effectively do it, and it's the only way to to like not have holes in it. You touched on something there that I that
1: I want to bring bring up too, and we we actually talked about it before the show, was the idea of anchor content. And this is something that like, you know, with State of the Edge, things like this are so valuable because now you're not just having your, you know, CEO or whoever it is spout off about random stuff all the time. They're spouting off about all these interesting things all the time. And they're always in our State of the Edge report. Right. Like, oh, well, yeah, actually in our State of the Edge report, we were doing blank. and. You repeat that enough times and it's like, I got to, I got to freaking read this thing. Yeah. And it's like, that's the thing that you poured. Yeah, Let me tell
3: you the story of the stage of the edge, because I think it's really instructive. I could lie to you and say it was like this master planned thing. It was an experiment. Like most of the things I do in marketing are, I mean, you sure I've got repeatable playbook stuff, but a lot of stuff's experiment. And this came, so, so my company's in, in the edge computing space. And as I mentioned earlier, there are a lot of large companies with a lot of big marketing budgets and a lot of smart people that they can send to conferences that are talking about edge computing. And And what we recognized, one of the problems we were having is that everybody was using different words. Every vendor was using a different word to define edge computing and all the pieces in it. Some people say, well, edge is in the bumper of a car. Edge is in the regional data center. Edge is somewhere else. And so Jacob Smith, who's the CMO of uh, Packet, we were literally having beers and we're like, somebody that has the, the smell of independence, of arm's length independence, needs to come out and put a stake in the ground and says, this is actually what it is. And so we dreamed up this idea of publishing the State of the Edge report, because who wouldn't want to read about the State of the Edge if you care about this, right? Like this is something that Gartner should do, but they weren't. I'm good at branding and storytelling, and Jacob is brilliant at fundraising. So we got a bunch of companies bigger than us to help fund this. We got Arm and Ericsson and a bunch of folks to help fund us. And we partnered with an analyst, uh, X451 analyst, and we basically wrote the state of the edge. And we did it very intentionally with a vendor neutral voice. We assembled multiple people, multiple customers to do this. And we ended up with this 80 page definitive report that now is the canonical thing that everybody has to refer to. But. It's the gift that keeps on giving because here's something that's cool that happens. At. So again, I mentioned I was a magazine editor and I ran a documentation department. And one of the most important things when you have multiple writers working on a single document is they all have to use the same words the same way. Yep. so You create you create a style sheet or a glossary. Yep. So I'm like every one of these words, infrastructure edge, device edge, you know, all these words are used differently by different people. So I'm going to make a glossary. So at least in our book, we all use them consistently. So I created this glossary. It's probably 150 200 entries. I started sending it around to, to peers. Like, what do you think? Do you have any suggestions and stuff? And they're like, where did you get this? I'm like, well, I just put it together. Can I use this? Can I publish this? Can I use this in my report? Can I put it in the whole thing? So I'm thinking, okay, there's something here, which I also think is part of what good marketing is, is having its experience and observation. And, uh, you know, like when you have an idea for something like service mesh, I mean, the way that I tested it is I literally called up 20 people. And I started using it in sentences. Totally. Yep. And just naturally. And if they started using it back in a sentence to add value to the conversation, I knew I was on to something. I knew that, okay, this term has something that it's filling a gap in their brain and they're going to use it. And you have that happen 15, 20 times. You're like, okay, this is it. We're going to go with this. So. I had this experience. 15, 20 people said, can I do this? Can I use this? So I thought, well... So I called the Linux Foundation. I said, okay, here's a totally nutty idea. And I told them the story of this open, of this glossary. And I said, what if we put it in a GitHub repo? And what if we attached a Creative Commons license to it? And we made it a open source project under the Linux Foundation. It's a glossary. And if you want to make suggestions, you can file an issue or a pull request and we'll run it like an open source thing. So the Linux Foundation says, that sounds a great experiment. Well, now it's become sort of the bridge across the eight or nine Linux Foundation Edge projects. There's like ONF and Acrano and and EdgeX Foundry. Plus it's been a bridge to the other organizations that are in the space. The Open Fog Consortium, the Telecommunications Infrastructure Association, the Infrastructure Masons, they're all now adopting this open glossary. Well, why? Well, because it, it doesn't have the stink of a vendor. Now, I run the steering committee, Right? I run it like an open source project. It's Everything's out and transparent, but I can help shape the discussions so that the things that are important to the industry as a whole, but also to my business to get clarified, actually end up getting clarified. And that's just a, it's a really interesting, powerful mechanism. And it was, I, I never could have predicted that. Like this was not like me coming up with this master plan. This is just like me trying stuff. This
1: is like so great. God, that was great. To talk about burying the lead, uh sorry um five things on this number one it's a brilliant idea number two going back and adding all those things into like urban dictionary is like you can like that's like the you know the growth hackery way to do that right you just like go at it publish it anonymously on like reddit or something right the other thing that i thought about was the this is so great and i've seen people do this with take uh, a google doc or a google spreadsheet And then they'll have it be not a piece of content on their site. They'll just link to that view only for everyone. And so it's like you're letting people find the content, go into it, and it's view only. And then they download it on their own terms. So it's not like the official report of whatever. It's like hey, I anybody can take this. And it's like, it's so unofficial that you get kind of that, you have less gravitas, but you have more like, oh, this Inside, is- Insider, yeah. yeah. Oh, I got like, the
3: secret document, yes. Yeah, yes. and it's
1: like, oh, by the way, the the original person who wrote all these definitions was us, right? It's just, that's really, it's a really interesting, and the way that you did it is brilliant, but that's a just a fascinating case study on how to create A-plus content.
2: It is. And it all came from this idea of just, you got to give it a try and test this and see. Got
3: to give it a try. And there was a definite need for it. And also being willing to sort of relinquish control. I mean, we manage it. We have the most influence, but it really, the State of the Edge brand is very intentionally vendor neutral. And that allows other people. I mean, like with the Open Glossary, I invite my competitors because their adoption of my glossary, even if that requires that some of their perspective get included is much better for the whole ecosystem, for the whole industry. So we're not competing around you know, words that actually are required for us to agree on to advance our business. We're competing on our products and the way that we approach the, the technology.
2: And ultimately, this is going to make the entire industry bigger, stronger, which only benefits everybody. That's
3: right. Yeah. My belief is ultimately this is all just going to accelerate the industry. Another thing
1: on at the beginning that you were talking about, about just using the word and not asking people, it reminds me of like the scientific method. You know, you bring in a married couple to study whether or not left-handed people or right-handed people can use their opposite hand, but really you're actually just studying the relationship of like what happens when a married couple has to like solve a problem together or whatever it is. It's kind of like that sort of thing. It's like, hey, I'd really like to run something by you. It's like, we were thinking of, you know, doing this piece of content. I don't know if you'd be interested, blah, 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 blah. But what you're actually testing for is like a word that you keep using over and over and over again. You're asking them for advice on something totally different, but the real, like the test, the AB test is whether or not they're, they're going to re- keep using that word. That is brilliant. That is like a plus stuff on Matt's white hat guide to, uh, <laughs> to, to, great to <laughs> test, <laughs> testing your ideas. That's a little gray hat.
2: Light gray, light yeah,
1: gray. It's light gray. gray. It's a it's a platinum. I just painted my room, my living room platinum. So it's yeah. Sad.
3: Well, I mean, to to be completely upfront, like I would never have a meaningless conversation with that. Oh, for yeah, no, mm-hmm. no yeah, I'm I, saying like I, actually, it, it is about something important yeah, that you're yeah. thinking of doing. But the way that you're testing that, yeah, message, that's right, that's right. You're just you're just seeing if it has some organic lift to it. And it's,
1: Does,
2: could this have legs? Yeah,
1: yeah. All right. So we are, you know, our, our producer is probably uh, red in the face with uh, angst of how long we've gone over, but this is great stuff. We got to do the lightning round before we get out of here. Are you ready? I don't even know what the lightning round is. Okay. I, so I guess... By intention. We didn't send it to you ahead of time. All right. Number one, first question. What app are you using on your phone? That's the most fun.
3: <laughs> I don't use any fun apps on my phone.
1: This is why we asked the question. Nobody has fun on their phones.
2: What is your favorite app on your phone?
3: My, my favorite
1: What's app? What's
2: your favorite app?
3: So my favorite app, the one that like actually gave me the most delight when I use it, although I haven't used it in a while, is Google Sky. That was just magic. This is, it's like Google Maps, but it's the night sky, and it uses the the gyro sensors in your phone to tell you, so you can point it at any, any part of the sky Listeners, I'm holding my hands up with my phone and look through your phone as if you're looking at the sky and see all the named constellations. It's just, it's magical. Second question.
1: What is your favorite ad that you've seen recently?
3: I don't think I've I've got ad blockers. I don't, I don't watch ads at all. I can't even think of an ad that I've seen recently. I love it. Gosh,
1: this is great. Number three, what's your favorite campaign that you've ever done? Oh,
3: Wow. That's hard because I've done a bunch that I really love. The favorite campaign I've ever done. I mean, I want to say State of the Edge because I'm so proud of that, and that was so recent. But so very early in my career, I worked for a software company that actually sold products in boxes on shelves and disks. And we had- Products in boxes on shelves? Yeah, yeah. We had had promised a bunch of customers a feature upgrade, and we ended up doing a 2.0 version of the product. But we had this liability on our books that we were we had to send all these people a disc, which was expensive. It costs like 10 bucks to send everybody a disc. So I was just, I, was, I don't know what my job, I was in t- charge of documentation. And I said, I'm just going to write a letter and I'm going to offer people a choice, which is, would you like to wait three months and get the 1.1 version with your color printer drivers for free, like we promised you? Or... You can pay the discounted price of nineteen dollars, and we'll send you the two O version that's normally sixty nine dollars. And we had like a ninety percent conversion rate. <laughs> that's crazy. Yeah, and it was just I felt so good because I was young, and I just you know the company was so happy that they wiped that pretty big financial obligation. I mean, this was this was hundreds of thousands of customers.
1: That's crazy. I always love the uh, the stories where it's like, how do you double your revenue, double your price? <laughs> <laughs> um, but that's crazy. That's a lot. Favorite book,
3: podcast, or thing that you've read or listened to recently? Oh, I'm such a podcast addict. And my, my new favorite, I mean, other than your podcast, hey, of course. Hey, right. shout um, out to Marketing Trends, Thanks. Yeah, Swindle. It's a podcast on people who, it's just a storytelling on just the crazy big swindles. Like they did something on the, um, what was that inner uterine device that made women get scar tissue and stuff. And it was just really scandalous. And Jeez. Yeah. It's a, but it's, it's. A riveting podcast. That's really I haven't heard of it. Favorite team sports or otherwise? I was always a I was always a solo sport person. Swimming. I didn't like team sports because I had to depend on other people, and they always disappointed favorite me. Favorite swimmer? Not on favorite swimmer. Me. There you go. <laughs> always
1: be you. Always want to be your own uh, your own best cheerleader. Thing you're most excited about for the future of marketing?
3: I mean again I, I have to pass this through the lens of myself because that's what I'm really most excited about what I'm really most excited about is finally getting the confidence to say this is what I'm really good at and I don't actually have to do those other things because I'm good enough at them and have the confidence to say that like that's really exciting to me and so I think being able to do this over and over again to do this kind of you know whether it's called category creation or messaging or strategic positioning whatever that thing is and again I haven't spent any time trying to codify it it's part of what I've been doing for uh, many decades. But that's most exciting to me to be able to do that over and over again, because I really like doing that. Best advice for a first-time CMO? Startup or established? First-time CMO. Uh, We'll go. How about both? Well, I can't really answer the big company one. Get out of the big company. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you know, we joked earlier about the half-life of a CMO, right? And I think for larger companies, that's really the case. It's, it's hard to quantify marketing. It's easy to blame marketing. So, Mike Maples at, at um, Floodgate, Floodgate Ventures. I know uh, Mike. Mike has a saying where he says, Look, if you're in sales or in engineering, you can get an A. If you're in marketing or finance, like the y- best you can do is a C. You're never going to get an A. I,
1: the advice I got when I've moved, I grew up in Oakland, so around here, but not in the valley. The best advice I got was like, if it's a spectrum, be as close to making the product or on the other end, selling the product. Anywhere in between you become expendable, the closer to the middle.
3: Yeah. So, so my advice, so Dan's actually to answer your question. My, my advice to a first time CMO in a startup company is do PR right. <laughs> I'm gonna give two one. Do PR right and really pay attention to the customer like really get inside their head, figure out what's important to them, how they describe their problems and how they describe your solution. A lot of times the best messaging comes from your customers. How would you describe our product to your peers? And it will surprise you. It won't be about the technology, be like, well, it made my knee pain go away.
1: Be like, or, or even better, it's like I'm averaging 12 points on my rec league basketball team because I can actually play basketball games. My knee pain's gone. There you go, exactly, exactly. Lauren, anything else?
2: No, I think that was everything. Matt, I every time I talk to you, I learn so much. So thank well, you Well, thank for- you, because
3: I f- still feel like an amateur. Like I don't belong doing this job.
2: <laughs> I I get such a kick out of the, well, I'm not really a marketer, except I've been a CMO like half dozen times yeah. that I've been doing marketing for 20 years. And I'm not really good at this but except- I go to these
3: marketing conferences, and I feel like like I don't know how to do this stuff. I don't know how to do this, you know- growth hacking stuff, like I just don't do it.
2: But what you know, you excel at more than almost anybody else.
3: Well, good, thank you. Well, yes. I finally come to that, that like I'm comfortable in that space.
2: I I think as a, a marketer and as a marketing leader, it's important to know who you are, what your experience, what your expertise is, what stage of the company you thrive in, and just double down and sort of lean into those things because that's what makes us well, successful. Well, maybe that's the
3: advice to the CMO is really figure that out. You're yeah. right. Yes, I wish I had figured that out at 30. Yeah. And hire the uh, the
1: folks on your team that can do the other stuff. Yeah, absolutely.
2: We can't be expected to be perfect at everything. So lean in deep to something, to what you're good at. And then you can hire people to augment the skill sets that you're either not good at or you just fundamentally don't enjoy.
1: Exactly. Well, Lauren, you're perfect at being a podcast co-host. Thank and you. Mike, you have a wonderful <laughs> voice. This is you got a career in this stuff as well. Thanks so much for hanging out, and uh, it's been a blast. We got to have well, we'll do a CMO roundtable sometime soon with Mike. Bruce. with Matt coming back. Did I say Mike the first, <laughs> you say first time? I figured you'd either edit that out or we'd laugh about it later. Yeah, so we'll probably just leave it in. And I swore. All right. Thanks so much for hanging you out, Matt. Thanks,
0: Matt. Thanks for listening to this episode of Marketing Trends. Marketing Trends is brought to you by Salesforce Pardot. World-class B2B marketers use Pardot to generate and nurture leads, close more deals, and maximize ROI at every stage of the sales cycle. Empower your marketing team to become revenue-generating superheroes and let Pardot's data analysis keep an eye on the bottom line. Learn more by visiting pardot.com slash podcast or click on the link in our show notes.
4: You have eight seconds to make a connection or risk a click away onto the next topic. The difference lies in your ability to deliver relevant experiences to your audience across devices and across channels. But delivering on a really great experience is impossible without the right people and the right technology. You've got the right people, but your technology choices will make or break someone's experience with your brand. At the center of gravity of your digital experience, Brightspot Content Management System can deliver relevant content, personalized experiences, and cross channel synergies to create unforgettable brand experiences so you can be a bright spot in someone's day. Head over to brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends to find out right now. From global crisis to hunger relief efforts, the messages you deliver save lives, inform important decision-making, and help keep communities safe and sound. The speed and scale of your content needs to be delivered faster faster and on a much larger scale. Brightspot content management system has supported some of the world's largest brands to communicate on a global scale. From Johnson & Johnson sharing critical information with their customers, to helping Whole Foods tell their brand story to a global audience. Brightspot is designed to handle rapid iteration and personalized messages to those you care about most. Learn more at brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends.